Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Forlow Magazine for contributing to the success of this podcast. Forlow Magazine, an enthusiast magazine for the 4x4 off-road community. Well, thank you for joining us today. Today we have none other than one of the OGs in the rock crawling world, one of the first promoters out there, ARCA president and founder, that would be Ranch Pratt. All right, today we do have Ranch Pratt on Conversations with Big Rich. Ranch, it's great to see you again. We went a long couple of years without physically seeing each other, and uh, last year we saw each other and talked a little bit at SEMA. It was good to see you, and now that we're doing this podcast, I'm really happy that you agreed to come on board. Thank you. A long time, like you said. Uh, We have a lot of history, and I hope things are going really well. Looks like they are. Yeah, things are going great, except for this COVID thing right now, but we won't get too much into that. I can't wait to get back out there and start putting on events. We started off this year with a real strong event and then uh, had to throw the anchors out and curl the sails in and do all that kind of stuff and wait for approval to go out and congregate in groups larger than 10. So we're waiting on that. But, you know, let's talk, let's talk history. How did you get started in, in off-road and, you know, where did you grow up and all that kind of good stuff? Oh, all the fun stuff. Yeah. So grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. A um, lot of four-wheeling to me in the in the early days was not what it actually is. My perception of it was wrong. And my father-in-law actually at the time got me into it. He he was into four-wheeling. He had an old, you know, Toyota pickup and uh, he was always inviting me to Moab and, you know, I didn't want to go. I perceived it as just a bunch of drunks trying to hammer down up a, a dirt hill you know somebody might roll several times and I'm like there I, was that there yeah was I, that. I know and that's what I thought <laughs> I'm like I don't want to do that that doesn't sound fun and but he kind of guilted me actually into going down to uh, Moab and we went on King Creek during the Easter Jeep Safari and I was with him in his truck and and we uh well we were in a big group of course like it like it uh, still is today. It wasn't quite as big back then, <clears throat> but we were following this light blue CJ7. It had one locker in it. Cane Creek's not a very hard trail, but back then, it, I mean, it was amazing, right? And I watched this thing creeping over everything, just walking over all these boulders. I was blown away. And I think a lot of people are that way. Uh, when they first go out and they really realize what a vehicle can do, it blows them away. And, and I was the same way. And I can't, I just got bit by the buck. Uh, at the time I was working for Easton sports, I was just a kid. And suddenly none of that stuff was interesting to me anymore. And all I wanted to do was, was Jeep. So I, I found this old golf course maintenance CJ five with a hard top. It was a 78. I didn't know anything about Jeeps, but I bought it. I, I was lucky. It had a T 18 in it. You know, and so a little bit better for off-road. And I bought a Lockrite locker, put some big 31-inch tires on it, all trains. <laughs> and we went down, and, and the very first trail that I drove myself was uh, Moab Rim. And then I went on, and then I, the next day I went on Pritchett Canyon, which kind of tainted me for every other trail, right? Those are not those are still, to this day, somewhat challenging. Pritchett, challenging. Pritchett especially. So uh, I just I just fell in love. And... Uh, I bought a lot of parts from Mepco, which is a, which was a, just a Jeep store. There was no internet. So there was nowhere to go to buy Jeep parts. And, and I went there and I got to know the owner, Mark Faulkner pretty well. And, uh, and then one day I came, I went to him and I said, I want to work here. 
So he hired me. I quit my job. My, my family was telling me how stupid I was because it was a little teeny tiny shop, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to work there. Well, then that kind of started my whole, my whole adventure in off-road. At some time, well, what, in the uh, 96, I guess, Jeep uh, changed their platform. They went to the TJs, Coil Springs. People were coming in and, and wanting to buy a lift kit. The Jeeps were selling like crazy, but nobody had a suspension system. And so Mark and I thought, well, let's just build one. We'll just build a suspension system. We'll be quick and we'll sell them. And then when the big companies and the big companies at the time were Rancho and Procom, uh, Skyjacker, when they come out with their kits, we'll, we'll stop selling them and we'll, you know, just buy theirs. But as we started developing it, we came up with a couple of ideas. We noticed that the, uh, the control arms that they had back in the day, which were box, you know, just square tubing, they were forcing the axle to be a torsion bar. So we made a flexible control arm, the flex arms, and that changed everything, you know, for bolt-on suspension systems. And so that launched TerraFlex. And I did that for, you know, a lot of years. Sold that a few, you know, several years ago now. So. And your, uh, is it your cousin, Vinny? Nope. Zero relationship. I get that question a lot. Really? Well, I thought you guys were related. Wow. Yeah, everybody does because his last name is the same, but we're no relationship. He, he just walked in off the street and applied for a, a job in marketing, Vinny Pratt. We hired him for his skills. Uh, yeah, but zero. I've, I've checked it out, of course, to see if somewhere way back, you know, there's some relationship, but there's not. And he's still there today. So yeah. we started that in 90. He, I think he started somewhere around probably like 97, 98. Okay. And he's still there. And he's, he's just an outstanding marketing guru. He's, he's turned out to be really great. You were Mepco. Then you helped. You, we were at Terraflex, which was kind of all one thing, but, you know, all owned by Mark, but still one business. Well, no, actually, Mark and I and Jeff Mock all, all co-founded it and were equal okay. partners in Terraflex. All right. So, but, uh, yeah, but what then, uh, then what happened is, um, you know, that spirit of competition is, has always been alive in off-road off-roading and rock crawling particularly and you know you get to an obstacle and honestly I think most people could relate to this if they're watching their buddy try it and he has to try it a second time they're counting kind of right he tried it two times he tried it three times he gets now he gets up it's five times I've got it I've got to get over this obstacle in less than five attempts and so that spirit of competition it's always been there Bob Hazel as you know he he put on an event uh he created some rules down in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and and I thought I want to do that. Phil Howe, uh, yeah, Phil Howe was uh, was was working on an event, and it was he's also the editor of Four Wheel Drive and Sport Utility magazine, and he was talking to me one day, and he goes, "This is it's just there's so many things going on in my life. I don't know if I can do all of this." And I so I said, "I'll do it." So I bought his event from Before him. It was actually and, an event. Yeah, he was he was actually starting it and a. a, a it was kind of a local, not locals, a uh, good, kind of a good old boys event, right? Where, and he had his, the good old boys in his circle were the top dogs. And so I bought that event from him and we went down to uh, Farmington, New Mexico. That's where it was. And man, I'll tell you, I didn't know any of the guys. I didn't know anybody. We set up rules. Um, I was pretty tight with Goodyear and they sponsored the event as a title sponsor. And they sent down a, a guy to tell me that that was going to be their only event that they were going to do. Because as it progressed, I, I decided I wanted a series. I want more than one event. I want, uh, I think it was four events at the time. Uh, because I think the, the cream kind of rises over an average, right? You, you might have a bad event. That doesn't mean you're the worst driver. So they sent him down to tell me, uh, yeah, they just wanted to do the one. And I got wind of that. So I put every dollar I that came in from that event into advertising, radio advertising and television. We had a huge crowd. I mean, it was massive. And the, and the event, it's not like the events that you're doing now or, it, or that I was even doing that are in a small area. This thing, this thing covered miles. <laughs> it was a huge event and there were people everywhere. And uh, that kind of kicked off the whole thing. He saw the crowds. He called back to headquarters and said, no, we need to be a part of this. And, and so they signed on for the following year. That's awesome. That first event, were you in Chokecherry Canyon? Yeah, it, it was Chokecherry Canyon. At Brown Spring, but you were spread out a lot farther? Or? Nope, it wasn't Brown Springs. We oh, had, wow. <clears throat> the area was open. 
you know, from the BLM, it's, it's designated open. So that the permits were easier uh, to get than they are today even. Yeah. So yeah, we had two separate canyons. And to be honest, it's been so long, I don't remember exactly where those were. But we had two separate canyons. So we had an A side and we had a B side. And there were, I think there was 15 obstacles in each of those groups. Wow. Yeah. And they were long obstacles. I mean, it was a it was a long event, two days, but it went from morning till dark. By some miracle, everybody got through every obstacle. You would drive from the A side to the B side. I mean, the spectators wouldn't just walk over and see, you know, the other side of the obstacles. They had to, they had to drive. Wow. Lots changed. Yeah. So you did, got that first one under, and that was, that was one of four for that year? That was one of one. One of one. the following year. Okay. What year was that? Was that 98 or 99? I think it was 98. That's, that's what I was thinking. It, it's one of those things that's really cloudy. Um, in the first interview that, that we did that airs, uh, my wife is interviewing me and I'm like, well, you know, I think it was 98, 99. Couldn't come up with the exact dates. Yeah, I but, think that's right. I, but yeah, I'm the same way. I've got a great memory. It's just short. You know? yeah. <laughs> so we go from the first event there in Farmington. How many, how many teams did you end up having? Do you remember? Yeah, we probably had 60 teams or, or so. Okay. It was a lot. Really good. Like turn. I said, it was a miracle. I don't know how we got them all through. It's an interesting thing, too, because uh, John Curry was there. Jeff Wagner, you remember him, rookie, oh, yeah. was his nickname. And he was like the, the king of the drivers in people's minds. He was the guy to watch out for, I, I guess is the better way to put it. And there was a particular obstacle and he rolled. And rolling at the time, you know, that was an event. I mean, if somebody rolled, that was a bad, bad thing, right? And so he rolled. Everybody was freaked out. The rookie rolled. This is crazy. What are we doing, you know? And he was okay, of course, and and uh, now it's it's not a big deal, but it, it really struck a firestorm, and people were panicked about it. There were, they, I mean, we're talking about jeeps, some of them daily drivers, and I, in fact, I remember John Williams from uh, from uh, at the time Mount Logan off road. He had a beautiful Bronco, and and when I saw a rookie roll. I just thought, man, I'm going to, I'm trashing these vehicles. It wasn't my intent, but you got to make it hard too, you know? And so I guess that's noteworthy because so much has changed with the vehicles too. Yeah, absolutely. There are no full, if they're full body vehicles, they're nowadays, they're, they're trail rigs anyway that have been thrashed and beat on, you know, guys fix them up, but you know, they're, they're not, uh, it's not like back in the day. I remember the first event that I put on, that was a series event. It was Lucerne Valley at the Lions Club, Lions Club Pride Park. And they had, it was a gun range. And we had three classes, this mod stock, pro mod, unlimited. And the mod stock showed up and there's all these beautiful full bodied Jeeps. Mm -hmm. And two guys in particular had, I mean, they looked like hot rods you know, with all the fancy, I mean, flaked paint and flames and everything. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if you want to do this or not. And they're like, yeah, we, we wheel all the hard stuff at the hammers, you know? And I'm like, okay. And each of them started on a different obstacle and they both beat one before he got through the first gate. And the other one, he was about halfway through the first gate called for a winch to help them, you know, a safety line to get them off the course. And they're going like, okay, we're done. We're not doing this. We're going home. And I said, I'm sorry, but I kind of told you that was going to happen. Everybody else went out there and thrashed their stuff. But these two guys, I mean, they were older guys. You know, I was 42 at that time or 43. These guys were, you know, my age now in the 60s. And they were like, we're not here to beat our stuff up. And, you know, you totally understood it, especially back in the day. Right. But you appreciated those guys coming out. Because I remember the first event that I went to of yours was the Arizona event. Yeah, so that was our second event. Yeah, second event. And it was Florence Junction on Upper and Lower Woodpecker. And we were standing there right about where the road crossed between Upper and Lower. And there was a last obstacle there with 
with huge boulders, saw Steve Ramore go in there and blow up a U-joint or break an axle in that two and a half ton Rockwell stuff that he had under there. And I mean, it was a huge explosion. And some guy that was standing there goes, oh man, these guys don't know how to drive. I drive through that all the time. And I'm like, you're not driving the same lines these guys are being forced to drive. He goes, yeah, I drive that all the time. I said, I'll give you a hundred bucks right now. If you go get your Jeep (laughs) and you drive through there on your 33s or 35s, whatever you have, and drive and take that same line that that guy did in that sniper. And he was like, oh yeah, no, I could do that. And everybody around was like, you lying sack of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. there was no way. It, yeah, it's amazing. You can look at an obstacle and, and people drive it a certain way, right? It's usually the easiest way. Well, that's where you put the cone. That's right. That's where, you, yeah, you've got to block that way. Or you, you think, you know, if their vehicle were twisted a little bit, that would be, that'd be terrible. It's not the way you'd normally come into this thing. But if you had to, well, that'd be rough. And, and that's how you kind of say, and I'm sure you're, I, I mean, your courses are outstanding. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, okay. Got through the 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 first event there, second season or the seat the full season the next year. So we're figuring like ninety nine. That's when I first met you personally. I was the club president in Cedar City, Utah. Yep. When you've brought in the Arca events to Cedar, and at that time it was BLM property, and our club went out there and cleaned up, and because I mean there used to be cars and refrigerators and it was a free dump site basically everybody was using it as a free dump it was dean bullock dave burling myself doc buzzy bronsima i mean there was a ton of us that went out there and spent probably four or five weekends in a row hauling trash out mossdale trash company i think it is called they brought out dumpsters for us free of charge the thing that amazed me was how many people showed up to that first event there. I mean, there was a lot of people in, in Arizona, probably not like there was in Farmington, but the amount of crowd that showed up to Cedar City absolutely blew me away. Yeah, I remember that. Well, Phil Smith, I haven't seen in a lot ah, of yep, years. Phil Smith, he, yep. he kind of introduced me to probably to you yep. and also to Cedar City and Three Peaks. And uh, yeah, it it was an amazing event. Well, and that was one of our easier events to pull off, thanks to the help of, you know, your club and the city and every, everybody was wanting us to be there. It's an interesting thing. We we were talking for just a minute about uh, Apache Junction. That was a, that was a uh, sport changing event in a couple of different ways. One, I, I learned about the difficulties that we can have with the BLM. Yeah, Francisco. Francisco Mendoza. Yep. <laughs> what a jackwad. <laughs> he was terrible. So yeah, um, Sandy McCullen helped a lot with that event. She was out. She was awesome. I, that would never have, we probably wouldn't have gone on any farther without her, quite frankly, because she just, she was a bulldog, you know, and, and she wasn't taking anybody's crap and including Francisco. But yeah, I remember I flew down there. He wanted to look at the site she and I came, uh, we went out to Apache Junction. We came over this hill and there was four BLM vehicles and probably 12 people, a lot of ponytails and walking sticks. And I thought, oh, oh man, you know, this might be rough. And it was. <clears throat> we showed him the course we wanted. He, he, uh, he said no, because there's petroglyphs. And we, it went back and forth for a long time. And he said, we will give you authorization for this is months later for this area which is the area we had it in and i i remember we kept pointing to the map and saying this area yes this one right here but you won't give it for and i apologize i don't remember the exact names so you'll give it for canyon a but not canyon p yes and i look at sandy and you know we we both had this look we said okay well we'll sign up for it so we did but that canyon had so many petroglyphs I mean, it was crazy. How did they authorize it? We couldn't believe it. It had way more than the canyon we wanted. I actually think they made a mistake. But nevertheless, that's where the approval was. So we were out hanging banners and hiding petroglyphs and then roping it off so people wouldn't go there because, you know, we knew that would be trouble. We had uh, Goodyear wanted to bring the BL, uh, I mean, the blimp out. Wow. And uh, here's a story. 
And I was casually talking to Francisco after we were, or when we were ready to sign the documents. And I said, it'll be exciting. Uh, Goodyear's bringing the blimp. And he's going, um, they're going to fly over the event. I said, yeah. And he goes, no, they're not. It'll scare the wildlife. And I, and I said, Francisco, isn't, isn't their regulatory body, the FAA? And he goes, do you want your permit? <laughs> so they didn't fly over the event. They had to fly over the city. Wow. So that was my first run in with BLM and the challenges that they. Did he make you do a, an owl study? Yes. And, and then we had to, we had to do an owl study. We had to pay for an owl study. I don't even know what that meant. Right. I don't, I don't know what came of it. I mean, I know it, it gave us our permit. So we, we paid for the owl study. <laughs> we had to publish how to move a, a desert tortoise in case you stumble across one. And then they had a lot of, you know, they had a, just a ton of their rangers out there for, uh, for the event and parking. Parking was a challenge because a lot of people did come out. And of course they're worried about where are these guys are going to park. We want them on the road and we're trying to control a, a giant crowd with very few people, volunteers. And it was challenging, but, but it was a great event, you know, and I, for, uh, I remember a conversation you and I had had there uh, with respect to the BLM. So it sounds like you've dealt with Francisco yourself. Yeah, we actually, we actually did one in, in lower woodpecker and I remember walking it, this was after your event, and I, I walked it. Sandy was there to help as well, but we were, oh, there was probably 10 of us. Well, this was without BLM, and we're kind of looking at, you know, mapping it out in our mind where we wanted to go and what we needed to do to make it work. Before we brought BLM in and asked permission, we were just trying to get a lay of the land. My son goes, wow, there's, that's a really cool line right there. And I'm like, yeah, but there's there's a, a barrel cactus there, you know, they're oh, yeah. never let us use, you know, do that with the barrel cactus there. So we, we talked about it a little bit and we went on and the next thing I know is, you know, we, we kind of lay out what we wanted to do, had it, you know, kind of mapped out on paper and got Francisco out there to walk the area and seeing that we only used one, you know, we used a smaller area than you did as we're walking it. I'm looking around. And I said, yeah, we really want to use this area. And that barrel cactus isn't there. But I, it had been there like the week before, two weeks before. And so I didn't say nothing. And Francisco's walking around and he goes, he, he was, he said, you know, you're going to have to block off the petroglyphs. At that time, I think they had some of them fenced off actually. After, because it probably happened after your event, they fenced probably. it. He pointed and he goes, there used to be a barrel cactus right there. Right oh, wow. There. I mean, he, and I was like shocked. And I said, really? I said, we were here two weeks ago and I didn't see a barrel. I mean, there was no barrel cactus there. And so he walked up and looked at it and says, oh, maybe I'm mistaken. And we continued walking. Afterwards, I don't even remember who it was, but it was somebody that was there with us the first trip. And it wasn't Sandy or any of the Sandy's kids or Jack or anybody, but they, uh, the guy comes up to me and goes, we moved that, that barrel cactus. He goes, I'm a, I'm they a transplanted it. Yeah. I'm a certified or my friend's a certified landscaper, you know, for moving cactuses for construction projects. And we moved it and it's, you know, 50 feet away from where it was at. And I actually went and looked at that like five or six years after the event, just to make sure that, you know, it had been moved or it was still alive because I went and he showed it to me later on. And sure enough, that, that feral cactus was just fine. So, you know, yeah. we didn't kill anything. Um, we just moved it. That the owl study, that, that was one of the things that really perturbed me at the time. And I'm saying, I asked him, I said, okay, so when was the last time an owl was seen out here? Well, we don't have any recorded history of an owl of owls being here. And I'm like, so, what's the process for this owl study? And he goes, well, we send a, a team out there and they actually call owls and see if any show up. And I said, so here's an area that nobody's seen owls at, but you're saying it's a flyway. It's a possible habitat for these owls. There's no owls there now, or you've never seen one. 
I wish I'd have known that you had done the study at that time because I would have thrown that in their face. You should have capital, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I started to argue with him, like, you're going to call them in? Well, I want, I want my representative there when they're doing this. I want to make sure that, they, that they're, you know, not just saying they saw an owl. And Did you man, have to we pay went, for that study? What's that? Did you have to pay for the study? Oh, yeah. And I don't remember what it was. Their typical thing was always 500 bucks on anything, it seemed like, unless it was those um, the archaeological studies and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, which they'd already done, but they always charge you, you know, $15,000 for it, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, yeah, they, they, they made me do the owl study. They let me off from the polar bear study. Amazing. Yeah. I didn't have to do the polar bear study in Phoenix, but... Other than that, I think I, I had all of them, tortoise. So yeah, yeah, and we had to do the same thing, just like two years later. I think it was, that might have been three or four years later. Maybe that's why they made made us do it over again. But Cedar City was a different story. Cedar City was fantastic. The place was great. It was perfect. In in fact, uh, Cedar City is what I think that was our third event, and that is what gave me the idea to condense it, to really shrink it down. You know the whole sport morphs and it morphs from recreational trail riding, right? It makes sense that the first courses were kind of big because they were sort of like trails, but we, we got to Cedar city, three peaks, a smaller area. And I remember thinking, I bet we could, we could probably make it work in this small area. We'll just have to kind of make tight loops or, or whatever. And so that's what we did. The crowd was huge. They all got to see the obstacles. And even then our course was, three times as big as what it became later. Well, I remember but it was so it was spread out quite, you know, we, everything yeah. was spread out quite, quite a bit. I mean, that's where your course designer at the time out of Farmington. Phil. Phil. Yep. Phil. Yeah. Phil called out and the bunch of us of the club walked with him and made recommendations and showed him the rock areas. Cause we'd been playing on them, you know, for a couple of years, he was always, it was amazing working with him. And, and he actually took some of our ideas. I remember he looked at my son because little rich at the time was like a sophomore in high school or freshman in mm-hmm. high school. And he was like, he was like, well, what if, what if you guys did this? And he's looking at him and he goes, you don't even drive yet. What are you talking about? You know, yeah. but, <laughs> but it was, it was good to work with Phil. I, I saw Phil a couple of years ago down in Farmington. He came by one of our national events there in Chokecherry. He said that, you know, hey, if you ever want some help setting courses, come out and set with me. I'd love to, you know, share my ideas and stuff. And I don't know if he remembered, but if he remembered, but he had shared his ideas previously to with me. And, you know, that was where I learned a lot. Um, of course, Bob Rogie was my first course designer. He had competed there in uh, at Arizona. That's how I met Bob Rogie and Lance Clifford. They were they were kind of homeboys from Northern California. And then when Cedar City happened, they stayed at our house in Cedar. We had quite the party, but there were parties going all over that town during the, the ARCA event. That's, that was an amazing event. I'll have to give you that. That's for sure. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, yeah, it was fun times. We, we learned a lot. I actually learned a lot. It, I would say if there's anything that shaped me, it, it, it more than TerraFlex, more than the challenges of developing product or cash or all the problems that come from a new company like that. You know, Arca and uh, UROC and the com- competition was, and dealing with the teams and setting rules, and working with managing agencies and so forth, that that changes a lot about a person, you know, and you, you learn a lot and you, I think you really learn to manage people yes. more than anything. One of, one of the things that I like that I like to remind teams, because everybody's got their idea of how you should do things. I, I know you've come across this, whether it's teams on how the rules should be written, how the vehicle classes should be, how the courses are designed, where the events are at, all those kind of things. But as a promoter, you don't look at, at the event overall as one team might. You look at it, what's good for the whole sport and good for your business model, you know, and that's one of the things that the teams and they don't realize how much effort goes into putting on an event. It was like when Jesse Haynes started doing his event, Silver State Rock Crawl, and then he changed it to, to Super Crawl when he made the deal with you. He came up to me after that first event he did and says, 
Well, Rich, I've got to give you a lot more credit for doing everything you do and how many events a year you're doing. Because at that time, we were doing 20 events a year with the rock crawls and the racing. And he goes, I don't know how you do it. He goes, I live 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away from our site. And it's taken me all year to set up for one event. One and event, yeah. 20 times. It's crazy. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible amount of stress and, and condensed work with drop-dead deadlines. You miss the deadline, it's gone. You know, you don't get to kick it down the road a little bit or we'll, we'll reconvene. None of that happens. And, and I agree with you. The, and it's an interesting thing because when we were starting it, again, we came from recreational four-wheelers, rock crawlers, and, and full-body Jeeps, trail vehicles. And then we introduced a purse, you know, a good sized purse. We paid $20,000 an event. It was a total purse and everything changed. Everything with the relationship with the teams changed immediately. And you're right. They, they come in with the perspective of, of an event, winning an event. You're coming in with the perspective of, I've got to put on a, a good event. I've got to make it as fair as I possibly can for a judged event, which is challenging. Yes. I've got to keep people safe. I want them to also be able to see Right. I've got all these other these other uh, pressures from sponsors and, and, you know, people displaying there and they've got their distinct needs for being at the event and their perspective. I, you know, if a if a tire manufacturer comes in, he wants to be able to interact with the crowd. Of course, that's his goal. And he wants to brand himself. And you've got to make sure all of that stuff's right. And yeah, it's exhausting. And so and then you have the safety issue of, of the teams. So for me, and I, I don't know how much you experienced this, or you probably did, you were right in there. The rules were changing a lot because we were transitioning from regular, and, and a lot of it was driven by the teams, oddly enough, right? So in fact, I remember uh, the first big transition was Walker Evans. It was after, he came into uh, Phoenix and he had a full body, like S-series blazer. He didn't do so well. <clears throat> but he's a competitive guy. <laughs> so then uh, he he went to Vernal and he showed up with a tube chassis, kind of an S-series pickup with skins. It, I, I would say it was the first rock crawling buggy, at least that I was aware of. The teams hated him because he's a desert racer, right? You're a desert racer. Go back to your home. But, <laughs> but he came in and he, he won that event. And suddenly everybody's building buggies and we're trying to define rules. We have pressure from, you know, people like Jeep that are, that are wanting to keep the sport so that they can identify with a vehicle. We want people to look at a vehicle, sort of like a NASCAR might be. They look at that car and they, they identify with the car and that's how they wanted it. And the teams are moving faster than we were. We'd go to an event and, and we'd go to tech and we'd see something new every single time. And sometimes it, it puts, you know, you know, it might be something that's an advantage that you hadn't considered. Rear steer came along, right? Didn't see that before. Rear engine vehicles, open, open uh, engine compartment vehicles, all of those had to be addressed over time. And every time you did a rule, the teams might perceive it as you're out to like, make somebody's life hard or you're, you're trying to make a rule for somebody else or build a course for a particular vehicle. You know, those are the, the kind of the conspiracy theories of the rock crawling world. And, and in fact, that very thing, I I've had that accusation a few times from teams where they said, they, I heard that I build a course for a specific driver. And I'm like, I am not that good. I wish I was, I wish I could, foresee how well a certain vehicle I know their wheelbase I know exactly how the driver drives I know exactly what's going to make it work for him and I could actually build a course that would be but I'm not that good I just build a course and looked at a thing and said do you think it's doable <laughs> you know sometimes you really don't know you hope one or two guys make it but uh <laughs> that's yeah, still right. <laughs> yeah I'm sure yeah you, you hope right yes so yeah, a lot of fun and uh, uh, a lot of changes during that time. And so there was that, that it's sort of a, a little bit of a conflict between the promoter and the teams. And also we were trying to, we were looking at a bigger picture. We want the, and I still want to see rock crawling as a, a, a well-known nationally recognized 
you know, motorsport. It's not an easy task. And it takes the cooperation of the promoter and the teams. They, I think the teams, or if, if anybody, I shouldn't say teams, I think if an individual is looking only out for an event, how well he does, it's a little bit short-sighted. Because if that whole sport can grow, if it becomes bigger, if more people come along, then more sponsors come along and he's in better shape himself. So it really takes that teamwork. And boy, even today, you know, I would exhort those teams to really get on board with the promoter, have a little bit of faith, recognize that he's probably, he's not doing things uh, to, to, to benefit one team or to hurt the teams. He's trying to grow the sport and the teams are the beneficiary as much as he is. So if they can all get on board and, and do that, the entire sport benefits. Absolutely. Nowadays, I think, you know, our, we don't have the number of competitors that we, that we used to have back before the housing crash. Um, that really drove the numbers down. And then, of course, people went to go, go fast and are doing the King of the Hammers and Ultra 4 thing. And, but we're starting to see peop, the, the sport grow again. The last event, we had 52 cars. That was substantial. And we could have had probably over 60 if all the unlimited and pro mod drivers had shown up. We don't get a lot of mod stock rigs anymore. They typically are, are just jump in with what we call sportsmen. And we have three sportsmen classes that kind of mirror the pro classes, except they're not quite as, you know, I don't expect the guys to be in fire suits. I don't expect the guys to have, you know, the, the, the vehicles quite up to par that the, that, you know, the pro classes sure. are. Yeah. So, Smart. But we also put them on a lot easier courses. It's a place for people to get their feet wet, have fun, hopefully learn the strategies to, so that they can move up or we get them to move up. And so that's, that's been, we've been doing that the last couple of years because all of a sudden when there were no other rock crawling events, except for we rock, it was like, my God, we don't have, you know, no, no parks are putting them on. Nobody else is putting them on. It's like, we have, we don't have a feeder system. It's gone. <clears throat> So yeah. now we had to figure out how do we become, I mean, we started off Cal Rocks, myself, as a feeder system. You know, it was the, to feed the pro series, get the guys. I'd go drag my little trailer out with all my stuff and put an event on for 20 guys. You know, and I was happy doing that. And then, you know, all of a sudden everything got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's, it, it without all those other organizations trying to put things on, it was like, okay, how do we sustain what we've got going you know how do we keep it growing and it's been difficult changing you know we've had to change rules um finally took away the rear steer penalty and unlimited that was the best thing i did in years it all of a sudden if, if all the unlimited show up there's 20 plus of them again and they're all rear steer buggies there's a couple of drag axle cars. Most of those guys are, are competing in the sportsman, but they're all looking to, to either change to rear steer and get back into the pros or they're building new cars with rear steer. We still see that vehicle tiny uh, oh, comes yeah. out. Yeah, it's down in Mexico, in Salido, Mexico, and the guy comes up and competes in our, our Texas events. So it's always good to see that. We just talked to John Bender yesterday and Larry McRae a couple of days before that. I, I want to say thank you for you being the first one out there to put together a series of events like that, to get the basis of the rules and classes started. Because as I watched what you were doing, you know, I was formulating when I moved back to California, what I was going to do. You, uh, you'd already, you know, broken ice and so I just went through the ice field that you'd create, you know, that you broke to try to, to get things going, you know, with, and that's why after the first event, put up or shut up, we went to multiple classes, you know, we, because I, I saw the disparity in vehicles really quickly. I mean, yeah. you know, the first event, like you said, everybody showed up with full body vehicles, you know, and then the next event, all of a sudden you got buggies and, you know, guys on 50 inch tires or whatever they were, you know, the biggest bogger you could find. You know, and then guys on 35s all competing against each other. Right. You broke the ground, so it was easy for me, easier for me to come along and say, okay, this is how we're going to do things. 
Oh, well, thank you. Well, yeah, it, it was a, it was a lot of fun. We, like I said, I think it was uh, very forming for me, you know, as a person, but it, it was something to be a part of the beginning of a whole new motorsport, <clears throat> and uh, and we we were clipping along. We did that event. Uh, we, we we started doing man-made courses. We did the uh, man-made course at SEMA, which was a probably one of the highlights of of uh, at least our uh, efforts. And uh, had a you know it's just an outstanding event with a lot of challenges, exhausting event. Uh, building an event, building a course on polystyrene blocks, you know, styrofoam blocks, and then tearing it down a couple of days. It's kind of heartbreaking because of the money and the effort. <laughs> uh, but it was really cool. And you're right. Then 2008 came. And for us, it was in October. I, I was negotiating with, we were fortunate. We had, uh, we had BFG, tire, you know, BF Goodrich. We had Toyo Tires, uh, Nitto, Maxis, all of those sponsors, all, Goodyear, of course, uh, we're working together, which is weird. And uh, they don't nowadays. <laughs> no, they, and they didn't before. You know, it's yeah. just such a, a momentum. And then 2008 came along, and somewhere in October, um, probably early October, I got a call from uh, BF Goodrich from uh, Jackson Dawson. Everything had unfolded, right? It was unfolding at the time, the crash. And they said, our marketing has been cut. We had agree had an agreement. We didn't have a formalized agreement. They did nothing wrong, but they called up and said, I, I'm just terribly sorry. We This crash has killed us. Our marketing budget has been slashed. The only off-road we're going to keep is the Baja 1000, which we've had forever. It's understandable. So that was discouraging. And then within three days I had gotten, I'd received calls from Maxis and Toyo and, you know, just all the big guys had marketing dollars cut as a result of, uh, of the economic just downturn. And so I, I was fortunate because it was in between seasons. So I wasn't out particularly, but it, it was money and, and uh, support that wasn't going to be coming in the following year. And by the time December rolled around, I thought I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of furlough the year. So I planned nothing that 2009. And then as things started to improve, I had already moved on to doing different things. And so just never picked it back up, you know, but it sure was a fantastic years, decade of, uh, of my life. Yeah, I have, I have to agree. It's it for me now, it's going on two decades and 20 years now of putting on events and it's, I, I love the people that I've been able to meet, whether they've been a small part of my life or a large part, they're truly, there's, there's an enthusiastic love that creates guys to do what, what we do, you know, whether it's us as promoters or, or the people that are in the industry building the stuff, you know, building the vehicles, building all the high end tech stuff that's come along the way. Um, the drivers, the spectators, you know, we're all enthusiasts. It's not, sure. it's, we don't attract the same kind of crowds like monster truck or NASCAR, you know, they're, they're there to see something totally different with us. It's there. They're there to see what these drivers can do. And the drivers are there, you know, for that same reason um, to, you know, it's not about the money. There's, there's not enough money in it for, you know, for the drivers or at any point, you know, even when they're, when it seemed like they were good paydays, what people had into their vehicles were not nothing close to what they, they invested in time and effort um, and including dollars. I mean, rock crawling is a lot less expensive because of maintenance costs compared to the racing. Because when you, you know, you break something at 80 miles an hour, you know, there's a, there's a cause and effect that just, you know, spreads across the desert, you might say. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, the rock crawling, you know, you break a link, you know, you, we strap you up and we get you off the course. And you fix just the link. Yeah. The ra- we did some racing for, uh, as you know, for a year and a, so that one must've been 2007. We started rock cross and started it at Pomona fairgrounds, Pomona uh, show, you know, right. and we did that that show two years, but just one full season of, of rock cross. And then, you know, the disaster of the economy struck, 
but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's an expensive sport, but not nearly as expensive as others. And I think that the fans have more of an appreciation for what the drivers, the teams can do because they have, they're going back and they're driving their own Jeep back home, but they've been on trails, you know? So they see that stuff and think, no way, yeah, no way I would do that. But they want to look like those guys that were competing. So right. it was like, you know, okay, they got the cool shocks with coilovers. You know, they've got, you know, the cool link suspension. They've got all this, you know, cool steering and brakes and all the other stuff, you know, harnesses and cages and all the stuff that, that happened because of the technology advancements due to guys driving harder and harder courses and just pushing the envelope well, that it just pushed the aftermarket. Uh, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. It, and even today, the, the aftermarket should be looking at competitive motorsports. They should be looking at your series. Anybody who makes a, a, a other than cosmetic pieces, uh, any type of performance parts, whether it's suspension or tires or wheels or anything, should be looking at competitive uh, rock crawling and, and racing for some level of participation. If nothing else, and probably the, the biggest thing that they can gain out of it is uh, an understanding of the next step and, and, and performance improvements and what people are doing. People are smart. These rock crawling teams come up, they, they know what they're talking about. And when you talk about, for example, suspension, when we, when we started the, when I started ARCA and I already had TerraFlex, part of the reason I did it was because I could promote my own brand, right? That, obviously. But the other part was I wanted to see what people were doing. Somebody might have an outstanding idea and you can talk to that person and incorporate that into a, a aftermarket piece that anybody could use. But you got to go in there with that mentality. It's not all about branding. It's proving product, branding, or developing product. All three of those are, out, are good reasons to get involved with competitive rock crawling. And I, I, you know, even when I'm talking to manufacturers today, I ask them if they are involved in anything. A lot of them aren't. And I think it's important that they realize that there are avenues they should be taking to improve their product and really come up with some new ideas. Because exactly. the guy who's trying to win is the guy who's really thinking about how to make that happen, how to come up with performance improvements. You know, it's, it's not the guy on the trail. He's, he's going to Facebook for answers. And, well, probably everybody's going to Facebook. But, but the, the communities and groups and uh, the, the, the uh, innovation and the depth of knowledge within the competitive space is much more profound than the recreational guy. True. You had ARCA, you moved to a, a relationship with uh, the Pades and UROC and set ARCA aside and became part of UROC. In 2008, 2009, you stopped doing events. What have you done since? So, yeah, so after that, it was, it, there was a period of, like I have had several companies. One of them wasn't the most glamorous, but I... Uh, I had a buddy who who had a technology to run assisted living communities, but he couldn't sell it very well. It was too expensive. So he was talking to me and, and uh, we came up with this idea to give it away, right? But get your money somewhere else. So we, we bought a pharmacy for long-term care. And then we set up uh, assisted living and skilled nursing facilities throughout the U.S. with this technology. And they got the technology free uh, if they were using the pharmacy. So we did that for several years, sold that. And then, uh, and then we were approached because of rock crawling and TerraFlex and so forth. I was approached by a, a particular person who had been working with Roush to develop uh, extended range plug-in hybrid electric full-size vehicles. And they had a, uh, an, a, they had to get three vehicles ready for the Detroit auto show. This is in October of you know, 11, something like that. And uh, they had to get, yeah, three vehicles developed for the Detroit auto show in February. And they said, can you, can you do it? Like, I'm an idiot. Right. So I said, sure. <laughs> I, I, I called on everybody I knew that, that was good. Ben Hanks was there. Um, just a lot of rock crawlers, but a, just a lot of people that I knew from automotive and we developed, we 
we drove into the Detroit Auto Show two of the three vehicles that we were uh, required to build. One of them we didn't have batteries for, so we pushed that, but it could have driven. And so because we had we did that and we had and Roush had been working on these vehicles for years and they pushed their their truck in as well. We got that contract and I did that uh, for several years developing electric trucks for the Department of Energy. Nice. I called it the Manhattan Project. It was it was tough. You know, at first I thought it would be easy. You know, you'd, you'd swap out the transmission for a, for a generator, throw in some batteries and a, and a motor. But you don't think of all the other things like no power steering. Uh-oh, engine's not running. We don't have power steering. We don't have power brakes. We don't have, we don't have cabin air or heat. And what about, uh, you know, we're talking about vehicles that go on the street. So we've got a FMVSS and NHTSA. We've got to pass all those tests. We've got to do crash tests. Yeah, so that was the Manhattan Project. And I did that for several years. And then, uh, then we sold that company. And uh, they're still uh, working and building even bigger vehicles now that are electric. And then, and then after that, I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I've always been a scuba diver. So I started a, a company called Indigo Industries, and we're a scuba diving products manufacturer. And we have a, a tactical division for military, which has been really – the military stuff has been quite fun. You know, those guys are like the mentality of rock crawlers. They're, it, they're, there's nothing that's too hard or challenging, and they, they always want to kind of push it. So I've enjoyed that. Um, and I have a uh, – a company we actually launched at the Mint 400 this year called bestoffroad.com. Awkward timing. So we, we launched it at the Mint, and then the next week or maybe within two weeks, things began to change. So that was our, our uh, racing portion uh, launch, and then we are going to launch for rock crawling at the Easter Jeep Safari. But obviously that didn't happen. So we've kind of pushed that back and we're waiting to see, we still uh, will be doing that. So we'll have uh, offroad.com and, or I mean, excuse me, bestoffroad.com and best off-road products. So we'll be developing some, some products for the off-road industry again. Excellent. I'll have to look that up and check it out. Cool. So what, uh, what do you see for your future? You know, the, uh, you're still, you're still living in, in the Salt Lake area. Yeah. Still based out of there? Yep. Still, uh, I'll always be here. I love this area and, you know, the people and all of my friends at Terraflex. And so I'll, I'll stay here. You know, I, I, I've gone up and down. I've had several 14 different companies. Um, and I've realized I don't want to do one and then another. That's too hard. So I, I, five is my goal. That way it kind of adds some stability and diversity. And I just love developing products. And that's probably what I will do. I don't see me ever getting back into your arena other than to come and hopefully watch an event and, you know, meet some, see some old friends, but, uh, it'll be manufacturing. Cool. Yeah. How's your dad doing? He's good. Yeah. Good. He's getting a little older, you know, and he, but he, he's not slowing down much. He skis a lot. He's still Jeeps. He's got a TJ and yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he really misses it. You know, back he, in those old days, people. back in those old days of rock crawling, I looked forward to every time I came to one of your events was hanging out with Bob and, and just talking. You yeah. Know, never <laughs> really about rock crawling or anything else. It was just, you know, sitting and talking. It's kind of like, you know, when I get a chance to talk with Don Campbell, you know, same right. thing, just, you know, the, the wealth of, of knowledge that's in those minds is, was awesome. Yeah. My, my dad was my buffer, you know, because I had to be the bad guy. I had to make the rules. I had to make the awkward calls just like you, but everybody loved him. And he was just a good old boy. He was joking with him and telling jokes that probably aren't appropriate and, you know, fun stuff. And, and so he kind of buffered me from the teams fully lynching me. <laughs> but uh, I hear that a lot, you know, how was your dad? And they, they miss him. And, yeah, he was he was probably the most heartbroken when we decided to cancel the season. He just he loved going to the events. He worked his guts out. He really misses it. So he'd love to come to one of your events too. So is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you want that you want to talk about? No. 
I think, uh, I think, you know, if there's any message, I've already stated it, but it would be, you know, teams have a reason to align with you. There's little things that come up, right? But, but, or a, or a call or a rule to uh, maybe a vehicle rule or a safety rule or a, a call that you have on the course or whatever it might be. Those things, that's co- competition. You know, what's, contra- what's competition without controversy? There must not be enough competition, right? And, but the mindset has got to be the whole. It's got to be for the whole sport. And that includes, you know, and, and I hope that some manufacturers have an opportunity to, to hear this, but it, they really should be looking at their marketing and their development avenues and focusing some energy and diverting some resources to building up that sport. If the sport grows, if, if it gets to a point where it's, it's, yeah, there's the buggies and there's the high end, the, the high dollar guys, but those are the, that's kind of the halo product of a, a promoter, right? Your halo product is the Tracy Jordans and the, and the guys who are just the extreme guys who are always just amazing to watch. But that's, that's what everybody aspires to, but they're not that, but they want to be that. Correct. And because they want to be that, they start taking action. They buy products. They, they want their full body vehicle to, to be as close to that as they can. And so that's an investment that, that manufacturers should be making. And I, I certainly hope that in the future they do more of that and the teams get on board more and, and really build that whole sport up. Yeah. There's, there's not another motorsport like it where you get to be so close to the action that you're, you're tantalizing all of everybody's sensories. Um, you know, whether it's the sight, sound, smell, taste, you know, yeah. I mean, off-road, yeah. off-road in particular is the one sport you get to take home with you. Of course, you get, you shower it off later. But, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's the one sport where you can look on the ground and watch the rubber coming off the tire and making a little pile, right? You're not up in a stand and you can't, you, you can maybe smell some rubber burning after it's happened. But when you're that close, safe enough, but close, you can, you can smell it, you can see it, you know, you're, you're really part of it. It's, it's an exciting thing. And the things that they do even today are still, well, even more so today, those obstacles that that they're doing now, especially a lot of the downhill stuff wasn't done even back then. You know, it's just, it always steps up, always steps up. And, and uh, you've, you've done an outstanding job of continuing that push to make it more difficult and push the envelope. And, you know, you probably have some teams saying, what are you thinking, Rich? You're trying to kill us. <laughs> well, exactly. Especially at Farmington, you know, yeah. the, the first time somebody comes to Farmington, you know, they, they, they look down those, those lines or up them and they said, you know, God, I hope I don't die. You yeah. Know? And, right. You know, we haven't, we've never gotten into that situation. The, the vehicles nowadays are so advanced mm-hmm. that to make it difficult. And I go back and I, I blame, yeah, I, I blame, I blame John Nelson and I'm going to have a conversation with him hopefully, but I, I blame him when he called me up and said, Rich, you got to allow us to put water, at least water in the tires because water's free. And I was like, no, John, water's not free because it's going to come with the newest, greatest metals that are unobtainium, you know, and that kind of stuff because, because everything's going to start breaking and you're going to take, we're going to have to take the obstacles and make them that much more difficult where, you know, people are going to consider it death defying. And he goes, well, that's great for the crowds. And I'm like, yeah, you don't, you know, I didn't want to take that, that Step. step into that, that unknown. We ended up doing it and, you know, we've done well with it, you know, for a while there, we, until the technology really caught up with the, with the courses and, and meaning that, you know, the cars could drive them, but, you know, half the field we'd break. And so on Sunday, you know, you just wouldn't, the second day, you just wouldn't have enough vehicles to really put on a show. And, you know, we've gotten past that, the, the products are there to keep the cars surviving now it's just whether or not they will survive a rollover. One of the things that I always learned is you don't have to force anybody into a rollover because they'll figure out how to do it all on their yeah, own. Yeah, that's right. They always have. They've been good at that. But, well, yeah, the, the water in the tires, we had uh, some of that. I don't remember what we ruled or not. It's been so long. But 
it, it makes a huge difference. And, and even that, though, is an example of what I was talking about with manufacturers. You know, if they really understand the difference between rock crawling and racing is tremendous. I mean, unsprung weight, where it's at, so forth. They're almost polar opposite, right? And, uh, and they can learn from that. And so can people. So the more spectators that get involved in this that are actually average Joe, that, you know, the better they can become as drivers themselves. You're watching right. these things that you can learn a lot, but yeah, the, those, those courses, you know, I've seen a lot of video. I watch it. Of course I follow it. And I, and I have a lot of friends that are still actively engaged in com- competitive rock crawling. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, hey, I think if I were doing it today, of course I haven't, you know, it's been a while, right? So I haven't changed day by day. I don't know if I would do that line. So there, there's changes. And you've done, a, like I said, a great job. And I, I can only imagine what five years from now or 10 years from now will be that these vehicles will be doing. I, I wonder, um, Jesse Haynes is really pushing the envelope on developing, especially those unlimited cars. It, as a course designer and a promoter, I have to look at everybody that shows up to that event. And in that class, it's going to run those lines. There's the guys that want the hardest, most difficult obstacle that they can hit. And I have to look at it saying, okay, well, I still have to put pro mods over there. I have to put guys brand new to buggies on that, that are stepping up into pros. You know, I have to make lines that they can do because if, if they're unsuccessful, they won't come back. They have to have little wins, meaning they have to finish a course. Yeah, they might, they might finish last in the event, but they, they cleared two obstacles. Yes. And one of them they did really well. And they, they, that's what hooks people, right? That's what gives you that passion. Yeah, and I always tell those, those best drivers, it doesn't matter. You know, don't come and tell me it's easy unless you've done every single obstacle, meaning, you know, you've taken every single bonus line yep. and you've scored, you know, zero or you know the best score possible or you've you've uh, only taken a couple of backups if you've left anything on the table any bonus out there don't tell me it was too easy well and i had the reverse of that too i i we do an obstacle you probably remember portland indiana we had a, a pretty gnarly obstacle and it was a rough one but we had three people make it so we had a lot of teams saying, you know, that was ridiculous. That was way too hard. Ridiculous. And I'm like, well, except three guys made it. So it's not impossible. Maybe it was impossible for you, you know, right. never. I mean, I would say something that dumb and maybe it was impossible for you. And that's how I made friends. <laughs> but I still do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it's true. I mean, a few guys make it two or three guys make it. I feel like it's a good obstacle. If, if everybody clears it with a low score, I probably failed. That's probably how you feel. Exactly. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, as long as that winner has a one point better than second place, that's all that matters to me. I know that, that those guys would rather be farther apart. So when we go into that final obstacle, the shootout, that they don't have to stress, it's, it's amazing to watch the third place guy go into the shootout clear the course, maybe not taking every bonus, but now laying the smack down for number for the second and third or first place guys that follow him now having to, to finish the course, but score better. Yeah. So like right. less, one less backup, maybe catch another bonus, um, whatever. And whenever that second or third place guys jumps up onto the first place podium and beats the guy that spent all weekend in first place, I know that that guy hates the shootout and he may not have liked that obstacle, but it still, it was the culmination and it was the hardest one to do, you know, and they they are like, okay, you know, next time you just got to do a little bit better, but it's a fine line. Well, you know, I I agree with you. The closer, the better for a promoter, actually for everybody, even, even the competitors, even the guy who, you know, I used to race motocross and my very best race my most memorable race, I took second, but I was in first three or four or five times. 
you know, so those close, those closer events, closer finishes are better. My, one of the uh, most memorable from uh, Rock Arca days is, it was actually at the SEMA show. Jason Scherer on the very last obstacle, the, the very last obstacle was the defining moment. And everybody was watching it because whatever happened in this next six minutes, you know, changed everything, could change everything. And it did, in fact. And, and uh, those are the exciting ones. Yep, I agree. Well, Ranch, thank you for spending time with me today, talking about the history of the sport and, and the nuances from a promoter's side. I can talk until I'm blue in the face and the guys just look at me like, yeah, right. You know, you're just <laughs> looking out for yourself. But, you know, to hear it come from you as well, you know, maybe they'll, they'll have a better understanding of uh, why I have all this gray hair. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it, it is really a challenge to be a promoter. It's every bit as hard to be a promoter as it is to be a, a competitive team, you know, and it takes all of the, the same energy directed in a different way. There's tons of stress. So I have a lot of respect for what you've done and how long you've been doing it. And, and I know you've taken many beatings. You know, it's tough. I uh, always to like to say I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best promoter. I'm not the smartest promoter. I'm just the dumbest promoter to stay in the game this long. Nah, and the sport needs you i appreciate that well have a great day uh i'll let you know when this is going to air and uh you know thank you for for being a guest on conversations with big rich i appreciate it yeah thanks rich for inviting me and it was really good talking to you excellent thank you well that brings this episode to an end hope you enjoyed it we'll catch you next week with conversations with big rich thank you very much